Thank you, privilege, very much indeed. Well, do please keep the Bible passage open in front of you, and uh, let's, let's pray together and ask for the Lord's help. May the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all our hearts be now and always acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Now last uh, Sunday morning we were thinking about worship and uh, we were reminded that um, we have a tendency to make worship a separate category in our lives. That means that we tend to think of worship as something that we do on Sunday mornings or in our quiet time without it necessarily changing anything that we do in between. The most important thing that we learned last week from chapter 6 and the account, the marvellous account of David bringing up the ark to Jerusalem is that authentic worship, that is to say the worship that pleases God, always starts with a passion for the presence of the Lord. So if you cast your mind back, you'll remember that the the ark signified the presence of the Lord with his people. That's what it represented. And just as David brought the ark to Jerusalem, to the centre of power and the centre of authority in the nation of Israel, to the place where all the decisions were made for the people of God, in the same way, authentic worship begins when we ask Jesus into the very centre of our lives. In other words... Worship means making Jesus Lord of everything. Lord of our jobs. Lord of our relationships. Lord of our families. Lord of our finances. Lord of our health. Lord of our leisure. Lord of our ministry. Lord of all. Of course, that's not very fashionable these days. Many people find that idea to be a little bit over the top, slightly fundamentalist, perhaps rather fanatical. And their most charitable assessment is that that's really only for exceptionally keen Christians. So personally, I remember on one occasion, I found myself talking to a businessman after the evening service in a church not too far from here, And we were discussing uh, this view of worship as something that we do in all of our lives. And uh, he said to me, well, it's all very well for you professional Christians to talk like that, but it's not possible for the rest of us. Uh, Now, of course, he was being rather patronising and a little bit superior. But he, he was only saying what many people in church on Sunday morning think in their hearts, even if they're too polite to say it. Now, our passage this morning is there to teach us that this whole-of-life worship is not only possible for every Christian, but it actually comes quite naturally when we first understand what the Bible means 
when it says that God is committed to us. When we actually understand and grasp, not only in our mind, but in our heart, that God is committed to us, we will worship God in every area of our lives. We won't have to work at it, it'll happen quite naturally. Now the commitment that God has made to us is set out in what the Bible calls covenants or promises. And uh, I suggest that by God's grace, if we understand this chapter, it will elevate our worship to a new level. And that's because it contains one of the most important promises or covenants God ever made. Now, before we come to the text, two quick comments on the importance of covenants in Scripture. Firstly, why should we study them? Why study the covenants? Well, as always, John Piper has a great comment on this in one of his sermons, and I hope that that might appear on the screen. Uh, In answer to the question, why study the covenants, John Piper says this, quote, The reason we study the covenants is because in them we see the biblical proof that God's job description includes the responsibility to withhold no good thing from those who walk uprightly and to work for those who wait for him and to turn every setback for our eternal good. When God makes a covenant, he reveals his own job description and signs it. In almost every case, he comes to his covenant partner, lays his job description out, and says, this is how I will work for you with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength, if you will love me as I am and cleave to me and trust me to keep my word. Now friends, if you're a Christian here this morning, or if you're thinking about committing your life to Christ, then the covenants are there to tell you that the all-wise, all-powerful God of the Bible is all for you. And if that actually doesn't move you to worship, well, I guess nothing will. Now, my second comment is that what we've just said means, of course, that God's covenants are all about grace. In fact, when John Newton was studying this particular chapter and he came to David's prayer of praise from verse 18 onwards, he immediately sat down and wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. came from this chapter, best known hymn in the English language. So taking my cue from John Newton, I want us to look at this chapter under three very simple headings, which give us three foundational principles about grace. The first is that God's grace cannot be bought. God's grace cannot be bought. The second is God's grace cannot be stopped. And the third is that God's grace changes everything. So that's where we're going for the next few minutes together. Number one, God's grace cannot be bought. Verses 1 to 7. 
Now, in our series, we've seen that it's been a long and very difficult journey for David from the days when he was shepherding his father's sheep all those years ago to this particular point where he's now the undisputed, unchallenged king over Israel. We might perhaps expect that after all of that, that David would now be feeling like putting his feet up. But that isn't the case. Verse 2, have a look at it. David said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a palace of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Now, David knows that he owes all of his success to the Lord. And it seems wrong to him that he should be living in a luxury home with 10 bedrooms and 15 bathrooms or whatever it was, while the Ark of God is in such shabby accommodation. He feels uncomfortable about that, so he wants to build a house for the Lord. Now we need to be careful here because this isn't David doing anything so crass as attempting to pay the Lord back or indeed trying to bribe him. No, there is solid scriptural support for what David wants to do here. So keep a finger, please, into Samuel. Turn back in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 12. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 10. And the reason we're going to this passage is because several centuries before this, uh, the Lord had given Moses very strict and clear instructions about how Israel's worship was to be conducted once they entered the land. Deuteronomy 12, verse 10. This is what the Lord said. But you will cross the Jordan and settle in the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance and he will give you rest from all your enemies. Keep that phrase in your mind. Rest from all your enemies around you so that you will live in safety. Then, to the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name, there you are to bring everything I command you. Your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts, and all the choice possessions you vowed to the Lord. And there, rejoice before the Lord your God, you, your sons and daughters, your men servants and maidservants, and the Levites from your towns, who have no allotment or inheritance of their own. Now pay attention to verse 13. Be careful not to sacrifice your burnt offerings anywhere you please. Offer them only at the place the Lord will choose. Just so far. Now the main point in all of that is pretty obvious. The Lord was preparing Israel for a time when all their worship will be focused in one place. And this side of the cross, of course, we know that ultimately that place is not a building. It's a person. But we mustn't get ahead of ourselves. For the time being, come back to 2 Samuel. Put yourself in David's shoes, remembering what we've just read because all the conditions laid down in Deuteronomy have been fulfilled. The Lord has given him rest 
from all his enemies. The ark is in the new capital of the kingdom, surely an unmistakable sign that Jerusalem is the place the Lord has chosen as a dwelling for his name. So with all of that in mind, you see, we can't actually blame David for wanting to start the building project. But the Lord says to David, in effect, it's not you and it's not yet. Now, on the surface, that sounds like a tremendous put-down. We can't help thinking to ourselves, well, why does the Lord do that? And the answer is that grace doesn't work in that way. Look with me again at verse 6 in chapter 7. The Lord is speaking to David through the prophet Nathan, and the Lord says... I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Now what we're being told in this part of the chapter is the consistent pattern that we find throughout scripture. That where salvation is concerned, the Lord always takes the initiative. You see, in the surrounding pagan culture of that time, the standard procedure was for a king to build a magnificent temple for his God so that he could ask his God to give him victory and success. It was a sort of, you know, I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine kind of a relationship. But you see, the problem is that isn't grace, is it? And if that's how you think, about your relationship with God, if in your heart you have a kind of tit-for-tat relationship with God, where you're saying, look, uh, if I pay God with some church going and just a little bit more obedience here and there, then he'll give me what I want, well, rather than redeeming and refreshing your life, it will kill you spiritually. Because what you're actually saying in your heart is God owes me. And of course he doesn't. So I'm thinking of another uh, businessman, a very successful businessman that I knew years ago in London. And uh, he floated his company on the London stock market. He made a fortune. Outwardly, he was a very, very keen Christian. He was at all the church services, he was on all the retreats, he was in all the prayer meetings, he gave a fortune to the church, but then his wife left him and uh, his daughter got pregnant outside marriage. And of course these things are very, very hard to take for a keen Christian. But you see, because he felt that God owed him, he became increasingly bitter and eventually he turned his back on the Lord and for a very long time indeed it looked as if he was lost and it was only actually many years later that he repented and came back to the Lord but for a very long time it seemed that was never going to happen and it was all because he felt in his heart that God owed him something. The truth is of course God doesn't owe any of us anything. So, here in 2 Samuel, we're learning the lesson that lies right at the very heart of the Christian gospel. God literally gives David the kingdom. 
And when David wants to do something for God, to give something back, even out of the purest of motives, God says, you can't buy it. It's a gift. Now that is grace, isn't it? That's grace. And that's the first thing that we learn from our passage this morning. God's grace cannot be bought. The second thing we learn here is that God's grace cannot be stopped verses 8 to 17. Now these verses contain the the substance of God's covenant with David and uh, the treasure here, the thing we mustn't miss if we want to understand how marvellous God's promises are for us is that God's promise to David secures God's promise for God's people. So in verse 9, the Lord makes this promise to David. Have a look at it. He says, I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men on earth. In other words, David, you can't do anything for me, but I'm going to make your name greater than you could possibly imagine. And then look at verse 10. Immediately after verse 9, we find a promise not for David, but for Israel. God says, And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning. So the reason that the Lord will do great things for David is that he can do great things for his people. So, what exactly does the Lord promise to do for David? Well, the rather surprising answer is that the Lord will establish a house for David. Now, you won't get this passage unless you understand that there's a play on words going on here. David wants to build a house for the Lord meaning, of course, a building, a temple. The Lord won't let him do it. And what's going to happen instead is that the Lord will build a house for David. Meaning, of course, not a temple or a building, but a dynasty. Uh, So rather like we might today talk about the House of Windsor, referring to the British royal family, or... um, The house of Rothschild, that's another example, isn't it? So here, the Lord says that he's going to establish the house of David. And we're told that David's house will have three distinctive features. All Christians need to know what these features are. The first is that it will not be overcome by death. Look at verse 12. Can we all see verse 12 in our Bibles? God says, When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. So David's house, or or David's dynasty, will not be overcome by death. Then the second thing we're told is that David's house 
will not be destroyed by sin. Now that's highly significant because the Lord already knows that David's offspring, that is to say the kings who are going to rule Israel after him, many of them are going to be thoroughly disobedient, they're going to need to be disciplined, and that discipline is going to climax in the exile. But look at the promise in verse 15. But my love will never be taken away from him, the house, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. So unlike Saul, David's house will not be destroyed by sin. Thirdly, we're told that David's house or dynasty is not restricted by time. Verse 16. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So David's house, you see, is going to be quite different from any of the other great ruling families that we might think of in history. Um, I suppose in England we would think perhaps of the Tudors. Uh, They were a great ruling family. Or in Europe, the Habsburg family. Perhaps more recently we might think of the Kennedys in America. For a time, these families seemed to have the world at their feet. It seemed like they might last forever. But in each case, death or sin or simply the passage of time has done its work. And all the hopes that people might have had for a better world under their rule have actually come to nothing. But not with David's line. The Lord makes a firm promise that there's never going to be a day when that family line dies out. Quite the opposite. It will be established and firm for all time. And even better than that, it's not just David's house, but his kingdom that will endure forever. Now you see, that puts us on red alert, doesn't it, to be looking out for a king in David's line who's going to secure these marvellous promises for the people of God. Now the rest of the Old Testament is full of clues about this, but one of the best places, I think, comes in Isaiah chapter 9. Have a quick look at it. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Famous words but I think with special power when you consider what we're looking at in 2 Samuel 7. Isaiah chapter 9, and uh, Isaiah was writing at least uh, two centuries after David, after the life of David, and uh, Isaiah receives a message from the Lord for Israel. Verse 6, Isaiah 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, keep that phrase in mind, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, verse 7. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, 
establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So, according to verse 6, the person who's going to reign on David's throne and over his kingdom is God himself. And if we fast forward for a moment to the Gospel of Luke, no need to look it up, Uh, Luke writing a thousand years at least after David, when the angel Gabriel goes to visit Mary to tell her that she's going to be the mother of Jesus, what does Gabriel say about Jesus, about the baby that Mary is going to have? Well, Gabriel says this, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Now listen to this. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Luke chapter 1 verses 32 and 33. Now friends, do you feel the power of that? Can you see the faithfulness of God in that? God's covenant with David, confirmed through the prophet Isaiah, is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, who's given us the new covenant, sealed in his blood, and who's been raised from death and is ruling and reigning at God's right hand this morning. So friends, nothing, absolutely nothing, Nothing can stand in the way of God's grace. If God is for us, who can be against us? God's grace cannot be stopped. Thirdly and finally, God's grace changes everything. And uh, the text that I'm referencing very likely, we didn't read, it's verses 18 to 29, and it's David's response to the promise God has made. I think it's one of the most beautiful prayers in the Old Testament. Uh, We haven't got time to read it all now, but I want to encourage you to find a quiet moment this afternoon and just read that prayer for yourself. What I want to do this morning is to show you how grace changes David's life. And the first thing I want you to notice is that grace in David's life, means the end of pride and the beginning of humility. We can't say that David was a proud man before this, but at the beginning of chapter 7, he did start out believing that he was the guy who could do something for God. I'll build a house for you. But now look at what he says in verse 18. Who am I, O sovereign Lord, and what is my family? that you've brought me this far. Now that's not a false humility that's being kind of manufactured for the benefit of the viewers because there's no one there. There's no audience there except the Lord. David is now the most powerful man in the country and yet he can say, who am I to have received all of this favour? Secondly, in David's life, grace means the end of anxiety 
and the beginning of peace. I think it was Martin Luther who said that worry, worry is a form of ruling the world. Which means that, I think this is what Martin Luther meant, that when we're anxious, uh, we think we know how things should be, but we don't trust God to get it done. So we worry. So our prayers then become kind of a mechanism for trying to control God. See, David must have had lots of questions, mustn't he, about how God was going to do all of this. But here, he simply prays God's word back to him. Have a look at verse 25. David prays, And now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house. Do as you promised, so that your name will be great forever. It's a great principle that we all need to learn in our praying. to to ask God to do the things that he's promised and the things that he's told us he wants for us. That's a great principle in our praying. And then there's a third principle that arises directly out of God's promise to David. And the principle is that grace means the end of passivity, doing nothing and the beginning of discipleship if you want to find that principle you've got to come with me to the New Testament to see it so as we close just have a look at Matthew 28 a familiar passage Matthew chapter 28 verse 19 because here right at the very end of the gospel we've got the risen Lord Jesus who is great King David's greatest son, giving his final briefing to the disciples. Verse 18. Verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Now, what does that mean in the context of the things we've been thinking about this morning? It means, I think, that if I have surrendered my life to Jesus, if I have received his grace, sins forgiven, peace with God, a secure place in his eternal kingdom, well then I can't simply sit back as a spectator and do nothing and live only for myself, which is what I was doing before. I can't do that. No, Jesus charges me with the responsibility to go and tell others about his amazing grace. And if I really have received that grace, I will surely do it. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just thank you and praise you for your amazing, unstoppable grace. Thank you that you promised 
King David, that you would establish an everlasting, indestructible kingdom ruled by great King David's greater son, the Lord Jesus. And this side of the cross, we know that Jesus has made a way for us to enter that kingdom and to enjoy a completely fresh start with you and everlasting joy and peace in your presence. Heavenly Father, this is the best news in the world. It's the message everyone needs to hear. And so, as those who have received this amazing grace in the Gospel, give us a burden to proclaim it to everyone as you give us opportunity. And we ask it for Christ our Saviour's sake.